Welcome to the New Abbey Podcast. We're still in our Exodus series. This is a conversation around suffering and liberation. Today's question is, when you were growing up, what were some rituals you had around family mealtimes? Enjoy. Uh, we have been in this series in the book of Exodus, I think, for 11 weeks now, and we got a little bit more ways to go. Uh, we're finally in the place where the final plague is going to happen, which is interesting, by the way, because we just don't like live in that reality about how we talk about God anymore. We're like, oh, the God of plagues. Um, so we got to like kind of make sense of some of that, and today is the Passover moment. Uh, And so we're going to talk about the Passover as we talk about the table and how do we reclaim the table in our lives and how important the table is and how what we remember and the rituals that we have and what we're observing are incredibly important to who we are as human beings. So that's where we're going to go. But first, before we get there, we've got to talk about oscillating family narratives and then we got to talk about the actual passage. And then we got to talk about Leftovers, the TV show on HBO. Some of you know what I'm talking about there. Right? And then we got to talk about Yiddish grandmothers, because that's really going to be a nice follow-up to that. Then we got to talk about, wait, what do you mean by the Passover? And then how does the table get better? What does that have anything to do with Jesus? And then we're going to land the plane by saying how we all can simply be involved in the suffering and liberation of the world. Sounds simple. So let's get there. Oscillating family narratives. Uh, Psychologists will tell us this, that the family table is incredibly important for a child's development. That families that have meals together doesn't necessarily need to be dinner. Um, And the more that they have conversations that are intergenerationally oriented, and the more that they talk about suffering and the positive moments of a family's narrative, the better children will do, like exponentially. Their frontal lobes will develop stronger. Uh, They'll feel more attached. They'll have less emotional struggles. They'll have higher resiliency, less addiction issues. Like the lists go on and on by simply having a family meal together. But what they talk about is what kind of conversation are you having when you come to the table? And they say, you don't want just an ascending family narrative and you don't want just a descending family narrative. An ascending family narrative is things have always worked out for us, there are no troubles, and we avoid conflict at all costs. Some of you grew up in those families, a little passive aggressive, am I right? Some secret amens. Uh, Some of you grew up in a descending family narrative and we are victims and we have been martyrs and life has been very hard for us and we never get the win. Anybody been there? Then there's the oscillating family narrative, which says, 
We've had hard times. Remember when Grandpa John went through that and then like the shoe company fell through? Oh, but then remember over here when like Aunt Victoria uh, did that thing and now all the little kids in Toledo have food. I don't know what the story is for you. <laughs> that clearly was not in my notes, but yeah, yeah. But you, Jamarco, yeah, you get where I'm going there. Um, your kids need both. And then what they do is they participate in that narrative and they say, oh, this is the bigger intergenerational meta-narrative that I'm a part of. And it gives them a broader sense of security for who they are. But they need honesty. They need both sides. They have to hear that life is in fact hard and life is in fact good. And you are the people who model that. And the craziest thing that psychologists will tell us is what kids need in those conversations is just five minutes a day of those narratives. Your meal can be an hour long, but really if there's five minutes of adults genuinely talking to kids about an oscillating narrative, and if there's kids who can respond for just five minutes back, that will be one of the biggest factors if they become drug addicts or not. How does that blow your freaking mind, right? Um, and so it's very important, not only that we come to the table, but what are we actually talking about when we come to the table? Are we thoughtful in what we're remembering, the observations that we actually have of the world and the rituals that we participate in? So with that said, we're going to reclaim the table a little bit today. But first, let's read Exodus 11 and 12. I broke up some of the later sections of passage 12, or I mean of chapter 12. You can always go back and read more of it if you want. A lot of it is like, what did they do with the hyssop? And then what did they do with the meat? And how did they boil it? And that is some good reading if you would like in the morning. But for this morning, we're going to move it forward just a little bit faster. So Exodus 11 and 12. Now the Lord has said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. And when he does, he will drive you out completely. Tell the people that men and women alike are to ask their neighbors for articles of silver and gold. And the Lord made the Egyptians favorably disposed towards the people. And Moses himself was highly regarded in Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and by the people. Right, the Bible has an agenda. We know this. This is setting up that agenda. It's setting up who Moses is and how God acts and God's desires and plans specifically for the people of God. Uh, so Moses says, this is what the Lord says, about midnight I will go throughout Egypt and every firstborn son in Egypt will die. From the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the female slave. I'm going to pause here a second. This is difficult to read in 2017. And we're going to touch on that a little bit later, but I was pondering through that this week of, I grew up for a long time in the church where we would share stories like Noah's Ark and we're like, and everybody died. And we're like, woohoo. But it was fine because God did it. That actually makes me feel worse. Um, and so we have to make sense of actual culture and actual context and what is the Bible actually saying, right? We talk about, we take the Bible seriously here, but that doesn't always mean you take it literally um, because even Jesus didn't read the Bible that way. There's multiple ways and frameworks and perspectives that we can have. And so how do we make sense of violence at times when what we see in Jesus is a lack of violence? And so we're going to somehow sort out that light topic a little bit later as well. So, um, to the firstborn son of the female slave who is at her handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or will ever be again. 
But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any person or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these officials of yours will come to me, bowing down before me and saying, go you and all the people who follow you. After that, I will leave. Then Moses, hot with anger, left Pharaoh. And the Lord had said to Moses, Pharaoh will refuse to listen to you so that my wonders may be multiplied in Egypt. And Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not let the Israelites go out of his country. Now what you're expecting is plagues, something really big is going to happen, but that's not what happens in the biblical narrative. There's like this random pause and we're talking about like Thanksgiving dinner and you're like, huh? This is interesting. Why did this just happen in the flow of the narrative when God's getting kind of intense and like everybody's going to die? We have to deal with that. But all of a sudden there's this moment of saying, oh, but before this happens, let's talk about how you're going to remember this event. There's something important about that. There will be loud wailing. Nope, just joking. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, each one for his household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with which each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old uh, year males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. Dot, 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 all the hyssop stuff. If you want to read about how you boil your lamb, please feel free to follow later. Continuing on. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. And I will bring judgment on all of the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is the day you are to commemorate for the generations to come shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. And Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night and there was loud wailing in Egypt for there was not a house without someone dead. And during the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, up, leave my people, you and the Israelites, go worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks and herds as you have said and go and also bless me. So what do we do with the violence? What do we do when we honestly take a look at the story and we're trying to make sense of how to follow Jesus in 2017 in Los Angeles and this generally doesn't fulfill kind of how we think about God or even talk about God in a realistic way. And so one of the important things is what are we remembering and how are we, what are we observing and what are the rituals that we actually have? And so for the Israelites, this is an incredibly important story about their suffering and about their liberation. This is a story specifically for a specific people group, right, who endured suffering for 430 years at the hands of the Egyptians. 
And so what would happen is that after this moment and all of the years, even to this day, uh, from the Israelites to, to Jews, they would come to the Passover table and they would share this oscillating family narrative of their suffering. This reminder that at times it has been bad for us. At times we have been enslaved, at times we have been imprisoned, we have been broken, we have been wounded. The pharaohs of the world, the systems of the world have come after us. And if like, we want to be real for uh, ethnic and religious Jews, this has been a very real story for thousands of years. Not just pharaohs, right? Every major superpower that the world has ever seen as in many ways has come after the Jewish people. And so this narrative has survived because it gives them hope. If you are constantly persecuted, you make sense of violence in a lot of ways because you need to know there can be liberation. This isn't going to go on forever, is it? And imagine if you're a little kid and you're a part of these broken narratives, how much do you want to hear oh, maybe one day God's going to do something because this God has done something in the past. Now, as we think about this story, we also have to understand that this is not the final narrative in the biblical narrative of how God acts and what God does, what we're supposed to remember, what we're supposed to observe, and the rituals that we're supposed to have. And so we're going to move forward into the life of Jesus in a little bit about how the table gets bigger. But first, we need to kind of break down what's actually happening in the story. So first, you have the Passover. There is this moment, it's the final plague, where God is saying, I'm making a distinction between the Egyptians and the Israelites. This is like Old Testament Hebrew Bible language of saying that God is the liberator and God is the victor, um, which, is importantly, uh, which is incredibly important, particularly for a minority people group who has been oppressed and who has suffered at the hands of superpowers. Here's where it becomes difficult. We, or many of us, I should say, in this room, are not that minority people group. And we are in fact, the powerful, the privileged and lived in the superpowers. And so how we have utilized scriptures like this is to oppress more people and to hurt more people and to enslave more people in many different ways, right? All using the name of God to somehow do it. But this story is not for the powerful. This story is for the powerless. And when we take it seriously, it's a reminder that what God does is God breaks the chains of oppression. And one of the very interesting things that the Hebrew Bible does that does not happen in the rest of the ancient world is it has a linear view of what God is doing. And in the rest of the ancient world at the time, it was simply cyclical. So what would happen is if you were a slave, you were going to be a slave the rest of your life. And you're parents were slaves and your children will be slaves and your grandchildren will be slaves and your great-grandchildren will be slaves. And the powerful in your culture would constantly use these narratives that the gods put you there and the gods put us on the thrones and that's just the way that it is. So don't mess with the system. Now the Bible is revolutionary in what it's doing here. It is saying we break the cycle of time. That's what this God does. This God breaks the cycles that you thought could never be broken. Now that's important. This God says no to oppression and no to the powerful lording their power over people and frees people and brings them to liberation. 
That's a big difference in the narrative than powerful people using that story to expand their empires or to colonize the world, whether that's economically or through an industrial military complex or all the ways that powerful people can do it. There's powerful people in your family who abuse their power, right? There's powerful people at your work who abuse their power. And many of you sit in your family of origins or your place at work and you wonder, is this cycle going to continue forever? But the story of Exodus is when you are powerless, this God wants to break that cycle. Amen. And that's what we need is that reminder of what God is doing. Here's also something important about these stories and what's happening in this Passover event. There's an equality moment and an equilibrium that happens right here. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night and there was loud wailing in Egypt for there was not a house without someone dead. Another way of reading that is even the powerful in this moment, their power didn't mean anything anymore. They were experiencing suffering like everybody else. So you have this oppressed people group who has dealt with suffering this entire time. And now the narrative moves forward and says, and now everybody gets the suffering. And the Bible is really good at trying to bring us to that reality. We all suffer. Some people, it's very clear. We see the systems. We see the pharaohs that are systemic around them. We see the individual pharaohs that plague them. Right? Some people have enough power and enough privilege and enough um, security blankets and support in life that you don't necessarily see those pharaohs working against them, but they are secretly working there as well. And in this moment, in the scriptures, it's saying everybody's equal. Everybody suffers. And this is part of what the human journey looks like. And that brings us to the leftovers. The Leftovers is this great HBO show where something like 10% of the entire world population or 20% of the population just suddenly disappears. Has a little bit of rapturesque theology if some of you were in church in the 90s. A little left behind strong moment there, right? Um, but in these narratives, it's not about the rapture that necessarily happened. It's not like the chosen ones who said the right prayer go up to Jesus on the elevator. It's none of that. It's that the world equally just disappears. Why? Nobody knows. Was it because of their faith? Was it because of the morality? Was it more in one family or less in the other? And the answer is no. And what the story does in this three-season work by HBO is it's bringing everyone into a place of, what if the whole world suffered at once? How would we see each other then? And that's a powerful image. What if some of us do a really good job of having a facade and hiding what's truly going on, and so we do not honestly get to look into our brothers' and sisters' lives, our fellow humans' lives in the world, because of the way that some of us can manage suffering better than others, or the fact that we don't all suffer in the same way at the same time? But what if we all did? We would probably be less pharaohs. We would probably have a very different perspective on what it means to be human. When you know that when you look to your left and you look to your right, oh, there's suffering going on there too. And so when we come to the table, part of what we're doing is reclaiming the reality that suffering is a part of the human narrative. It is not something that we can avoid. And we are all experiencing at once, even if that's not the primary narrative that's going on within you at this moment, it might be at another time. And what if we could come to each other with empathy and kindness and mercy, and love, 
and grace, understanding that our fellow human could be suffering just as much as we are, then what does the world look like? And what if you were honest about that for just five minutes a day? The oscillating narrative of what it means to be human. How would you begin to treat the person who cut you off on the freeway differently, right? How would you begin to think about the boss at work who has you in that cycle? And maybe you think to yourself, oh, they're suffering too. It begins to change the way that we see the world and how we encounter it. And now to some Yiddish grandmothers. Uh, there is this Yiddish word called beba mamis. Come on, say it with me. Beba mamis. All that that means is Yiddish grandmother and the tales that they tell. And so what Baby Mamish is, it is this idea that we all need a good grandmother in our life to help us understand and make sense of the narrative that we have. And so even in the complexity of life, in our suffering, or at times when we just don't want to do things, we need the grandmother there to tell us the truth, even if it's not literally true. For example, maybe you have children and you say, I promised you the green beans are good. And the child says, no, I am not eating the green beans today. When can we get to desserts? But the grandmother will say to the kid, your dad didn't like green beans either, but he always ate them. Now the kid straightens up and says, oh, I eat green beans just like dad, right? Um, and we need those stories. Even if dad never ate green beans, it doesn't matter. What matters is now the kid believes that he or she is a part of a bigger narrative that they were not a part of before and that they too have the ability to overcome things. And so we all need a little baby mamish in our life where we need sometimes a broader narrative than ourselves that says, I don't know if I can actually get through this relationship. And somebody else gets to come along to the table of your life and say, oh, I went through that once as well, and I made it to the other side. And then all of a sudden you experience a little solidarity and you say, oh, I can get there too. Now we're talking. Here's how the story gets bigger. In the Exodus narrative and in the Passover that happens, God is making a distinction between the Israelites and the Egyptians. That's incredibly important, again, for an oppressed people group and how they understand what their suffering has been and where their liberation can go. And then what we see in the story of Jesus is that Jesus begins to take the very Passover story and he begins to make it a much more universal story for all of humanity. And it becomes a story of the suffering that we all experience and the liberation that we can all experience. And there's some key distinctions in the Passover story that Jesus is dealing with versus the story that we see in the Hebrew Bible or the Exodus event. One of the primary differences in the Jesus narrative is that when Jesus comes to the Passover table, right, three days before his, or the, the night of his crucifixion, he, he brings his disciples together and he does different things. One of the key distinctions of what Jesus is saying is he never invites anybody into violence. He never says the way that we deal with the pain of the world is that we bring about more pain by killing people. What does Jesus do on the night of his Passover? He washes people's feet. The narrative is now getting a little bit bigger and it's subtly shifting and an evolution is happening because in an oscillating family narrative, it needs to grow, it needs to get bigger, it now needs to make sense for new family members that are at the table. Families become very painful when you try to invite the new son-in-law or daughter-in-law into the family, but they don't ever get a place to fit because this is how we've always done things. 
And sometimes we read the Bible as if it's concretized and if it does not move and if it's monolithic in some way. And we think, oh, it's just the same from beginning to end. No, it is not. It evolves and it expands and it grows for a reason because humanity expands and it grows for a reason. And so we need to be connected to the growth of what's happening in these stories. So what we're now saying is, yes, there was a very specific people group somewhere back here that suffered and experienced liberation. But what God is eventually saying is, no, we've all experienced suffering and we all need liberation. And how do we move this story forward so that everybody is included? And now in this story, what's very distinct is that what they wanted Jesus to do is come into the Roman Empire and his kingdom would be about destroying this Roman Empire, right? Just like it happened in the Passover story thousands of years past. But instead what happens on that Passover night, you have the heads of all of the households, right? They're men. And they have with them a year old lamb or goat. And it is a boy. And what they do in remembering what happened before is they line up at the temple. And many scholars believe that sometimes up to 10,000 people would be lined up at the temple. And they take their lamb, which has been in their home for four days. So like the little boys and girls have been playing with the lamb, right? And that's the thing that they're about to kill. So this lamb has like been a part of the family living amongst them. And now part of the ritual and what they're remembering is, oh, as the first male, they're remembering, oh, we've experienced suffering, but look, we've experienced liberation. And how do I know that? Because I'm standing here with this lamb. And there are others who have not, right, who, who did not make it, and it's the Egyptians, but now they understand our suffering as well. It is, is equaling out the world. There's an equilibrium that is taking place in the physical acts of what you're remembering. And they would go up to the temple, and a few at a time, the priest would hand them a knife, and you would have to slit the throat of that little lamb or that little goat, and they would fill a little bowl of blood, and they would pour it on the temple. And then the rest of that day, 10,000 animals would go by. This is happening on the night of Jesus's Passover. So in that city, it gets a little quieter and quieter and quieter and the city stinks of blood and like a butcher shop. And like you need that image in your head because that's part of the powerful cinematic narrative in some ways of what the Bible is doing. That violence is happening to those animals, but the way of Jesus is the violence stops here. There's no more violence that should be released upon the world. That's a big shift in what we're remembering and what we're observing and the rituals that we should participate in. Maybe there's a point in your life where you're like, what I want is God to come in and kick some ass, right? That's what you want. You've been there. You've hurt. You want to see justice. You want to see these people bleed. You want to see them hurt in the same way that they've hurt you. Raise your hand if you've been there and the rest of you are liars. Okay, great. That's why a third of the Psalms are lament Psalms, right? Some of the Psalms say, I wanna take my children's head and crush them on rocks. And we need Psalms like that because it says, my human experience is sometimes violent and angry inside, and during my suffering, I want them to suffer in the same ways that I have. But the table that Jesus invites us to is, we will honor that suffering. We will talk about that suffering. That suffering is real, it is seen, and it is felt, but we will not pass that suffering on. And if you want to see the world change, then you let the violence stop here. The sheep have all bled out, 
The violence has already happened. That is not the way that we are moving forward. And there's a new story of liberation. And in this story of liberation, what happens is there's still equality and there's a new equilibrium, but the story's gotten bigger. And here's what it looks like. That in the early church, after the death and resurrection of Jesus, what they would do is they would come to a table. And in the Roman Empire, instead of God having killed the firstborn male of Caesar and all the way down to the very end of everyone who lives in the empire, now what the early Christians do is they invite people to the table. And for 350 years, it went from a few hundred people to 30 million people in, in the early church. Why? Because they participated in the reclaiming of the world by what they were remembering and by what they were observing and the rituals that they were participating in. And the actual rituals that they were participating in is inviting everybody to the table in a world where your distinction and your class made all of the difference, but not at this table. At this table, your suffering is acknowledged and you get to know that you are fully human. And so we have words like, you are not male and you are not female, which in our world means a little bit better now, but in the ancient world, it was, you are not a human being if you were female, but at this table, you are fully alive. There is neither slave nor master, which for most of human history, we were slaves and masters. And there's many people in our world who are enslaved today, but not at this table, right? There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither the chosen people anymore and everybody else. Everybody gets invited to the table. And it is not a metaphor. It was an actual table that they said, whether you are the senator or whether you are the slave, whether you are the prostitute or you are the pimp, whether you are the merchant, it doesn't matter what you are. We all get to literally come to this table and we get to honor one another's suffering and honor the fact that the violence has stopped and we all participate in the liberation of the world. So the question for you is who are you actually going to invite to your table? Will the suffering continue? Will the pain continue? Or is there a moment for you in this new narrative where the violence gets to stop and the way forward in the world is potentially inviting someone to the table who is not like you, who doesn't live with the same values that you have or the ideologies that you have? How would that bring about reconciliation and restoration? Obviously, you need to do that in safe ways. You're never doing that in a dangerous way, right? Uh, you don't have to invite a neo-Nazi to your table if you're going to be in harm. It's just something, something you should know. But there are people who you can invite to your table. And there's relationships that you can build of people who are different than you. Some of the ways that you do that is you just held the hands of someone about 30 minutes ago. Mm, I talked a lot. Um, and that reminds you, can I invite this person to my table? and learn their narrative? And how would that help me participate in the healing of the world and help them participate in the healing of the world? Can I participate with one of these homeless initiatives that's going on in our city? What would it look like if we started inviting the chronically homeless in our city to our actual tables? How does that begin to change the way that I see suffering and liberation? How does that begin to change the way that they see suffering and liberation? You can fill that in however you want, but that's the question that we have to live with is that coming to the table is incredibly important. It is a part of our deep thousands upon thousands of year tradition, but what we're remembering is important. How we're talking about God is important. How we participate with these rituals are important. That we give the five minutes a day to us to remind ourselves of this better narrative is important so that we are fuller and more mature and more transformed human beings. 
So find those same people and ask these questions together. Who can you invite to your table? This is not a metaphor. To share in each other's suffering and liberation. Thanks for listening to the New Abbey podcast. For more information, visit us on the web at www.newabbey.org.